of Hope is dedicated to making a difference in the lives of people with cancer, diabetes, and other serious illnesses with a mission of transforming the future of healthcare by turning science into a practical benefit. Hope into reality. This is City of Hope Radio with your host, Melanie Cole. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, or if you've been told you're at high risk for developing the D's, talk to City of Hope. It's important to learn about your options and take action right away. My guest today is Dr. Suzanne Warner. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at City of Hope. Welcome to the show, Dr. Warner. Tell us a little bit about pancreatic cancer. What's going on in the world now? People hear that term and right away they're very, very scared. So speak about pancreatic cancer. What's going on today? Well, uh, we are making some really great strides at City of Hope, both in our labs and clinically, uh, but the disease remains a very formidable opponent. You know, we've been working as scientists and medical uh, physicians and medical caregivers for the last 30 to 40 years trying to find the right weapons against pancreatic cancer, and we've really done kind of a crummy job because we still have a five-year survival taking all comers of only 7%. And we're trying to push that envelope with new therapies, but it's a slow-going process. Um, so right now, what we're, what we're working through as a scientific community is, is many different things along the disease continuum. What we know is that the vast majority of patients who present with a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer are unfortunately already going to have stage 4 disease, meaning that the disease has spread outside of the pancreas. And for those people, we don't have treatments that can cure them right now. We only have treatments that can prolong their lives. So what we're working together as a community to do do is is both to try for things that uh, can give us early detection, so laboratory evaluations, imaging, and things that are practical for a a broad population-based uh, tests that we can find. And then we're also working to, to find new treatments that can help patients who already have the cat out of the bag, so to speak, with, with the disease having spread. And then what my myself and my surgical colleagues are doing is we're working in the avenue for those lucky few, about 25 to 30% of patients who present with disease that might be able to come out one day, um, either when they present or after some chemotherapy. So we're working on new surgery techniques uh, that can minimize the morbidity of, of the operation, meaning the, the amount of complications that you can have and how aggressive the operation has to be to get the cancer out. So currently there's no early detection screening of any kind. What do you want patients to know about looking for something, symptoms that might signal? Yeah, it's really a difficult diagnosis to make because the symptoms themselves are are very vague and and somewhat general. And in many cases, when you start having alarm bells in your body and symptoms that are vigorous enough to send you to seek medical attention, in some cases it can actually already be too late. So what you really have to do is know your body and listen to your body. And if you feel like something's not right, you got to go and tell your doc and you got to be persistent because you're going to have a vague complaint. And, and a lot of times we as physicians like to be optimistic and tell you, oh, it's probably not a big deal. Uh, so I hate to inspire neurosis amongst the listeners, but uh, in many instances people can say, you know, I just felt like something wasn't right. Um, for, you know, the last year or so, and then I started losing weight, and then I started getting back pain. So I would I would advocate that the minute you feel like something's a little off, just to be persistent with your providers and, and say, you know, I'd really like an investigation. 
the the problem with with investigations for pancreatic cancer is that even if you get a CT scan, for instance, of the abdomen, uh, a lot of inexperienced radiologists who don't look at pancreases all the time might say that looks normal. I don't see a mass there. So that's the other problem that we have. Even the tools we have in place that are expensive, meaning a CT scan or MRIs that aren't appropriate for broad population screening tools, are sometimes not used appropriately uh, when you're not seen at a specialty center. So the best thing patients can do is listen to their bodies and make sure that when they have a test, uh, if, if a provider is worried about pancreatic cancer, that they make sure that they're getting second opinions from appropriate places like City of Hope or other institutions that see a lot of pancreatic cancer. Um, but mostly things to, for patients to watch for to answer your original question include things like uh, weight loss that's not intended, um, back pain, uh, fullness uh, in, in what, what people refer to as the solar plexus or the upper area of the abdomen. Of course, if you turn yellow or your urine starts to darken when you're not uh, dehydrated, that can be a sign of jaundice, which is a sign of a bile duct being blocked off, and that sometimes in lucky patients is an, a, a sign of early pancreatic cancer. Sometimes it's a sign of later pancreatic cancer too, um, but certainly turning yellow is a problem. And then uh, any kind of change in your stools, um, you know, a lot of people don't like to look down there uh, when they've had a bowel movement, but it can be really important uh, in helping you get clues as to what's going on inside your abdomen. So uh, we look for stools that are lighter in color. And we also look for things that would indicate that the pancreas is not working correctly. So if the stools uh, float in a funny way or smell different than they normally do for, for a consistent period of time, I know it's funny to talk about, but uh, that, that those can actually be things that need to be brought to the attention of your physician. No, that's really important and such great information put so succinctly, Dr. Warner. So I really appreciate you saying it like that. People need to hear it that way. Now, what about if you do get diagnosed? So what do you do as far as surgery and they hear these big, long procedures? Speak about the surgical interventions necessary. Sure. So for those lucky few patients, the, the somewhere along the lines of 30% of patients who present with a tumor that can come out, meaning that we have a chance at curing the disease because we can remove it, those patients uh, need to be seen at a center that does at least uh, 10 to 30 Whipples per year. So a Whipple procedure, uh, well, now, I should back up. Uh, the tumor can occur anywhere in the pancreas. The pancreas is an organ that sits right in the middle of our abdomen, uh, kind of right. Um, if you if you were to pick a midpoint between the belly button and the breastbone, pancreas sits about right there, and it starts in the middle of the abdomen and kind of dives back over towards the left, back up under your left rib cage, and nestles by your spleen. Uh, so the and tumors can occur anywhere where there's a head, a neck, a body, and a tail. There's also also an extra little tongue called the uncinate process, and the tumors can be anywhere there. If it's in the head or neck, then you have to have something called a Whipple procedure, and that is the creme de la creme of general surgery operations. So we take everything apart and put everything back together, basically up in the upper abdomen. If it's in the tail of the pancreas, that's a much easier operation, and you just have to kind of lop off the tail of the pancreas. Most of the time you take the spleen with you in the cases of cancer because lymph nodes that drain the pancreas live right next to the spleen. So um, 
those are your basic two surgical options. There is a very rare procedure called a central pancreatectomy that can be appropriate for some more benign lesions or very early stage cancers. That is shied away from in most centers except for places that do it fairly often because what happens is you leave a two cut edges of the pancreas, and those uh, are, can cause risks that we'll talk about here in a minute when we talk about complications related to surgery. But in general, once a patient gets a diagnosis, we want to know as physicians, is it resectable, meaning can it come out? Is it borderline resectable, meaning uh, is there something that's telling me, you know what, I shouldn't go straight to surgery, I should give this patient what we call neoadjuvant therapy, which is therapy that happens before surgery, so chemotherapy or radiation or both, or is it metastatic, uh, meaning it's spread somewhere else, so we're not going to get to cure. And there's one last bucket that's kind of rare, and that's the locally advanced unresectable bucket, and that's people whose disease has not spread outside of the pancreas but who uh, are not eligible for resection based on what the tumor is doing to the surrounding structures. So that brings us to the next question is how do we decide what is resectable and what isn't? So when we're looking to see if I can take something out safely, we're basically looking at, at some major blood vessels that live right next to the pancreas. I told you before the pancreas is right in the middle of the abdomen, and it's kind of like union central for blood vessels and lymphatic channels and nerves that do some pretty important things like provide oxygen to all of our small intestines and parts of our colon, uh, in addition to uh, uh, providing nutrients to our liver and getting things sent to our liver from our bowels to be cleaned out. So one of the big veins that runs there is called the portal vein. And if a tumor is touching or deforming the portal vein uh, to varying degrees, and there's a little bit of debate on this in the surgical community, uh, many people consider that borderline resectable. If it's touching an artery called the superior mesenteric artery, which supplies our small intestines, uh, then that also kind of lumps it into the borderline resectable group. If it if it's encasing either of those structures, um, mostly the, the artery, that kind of puts you in that locally advanced unresectable bucket. And there's a few other vessels that, that if they're touching in a certain way, that, that kind of determines which bucket you go in. But bottom line is if it's touching a blood vessel, that's a big deal. And many institutions will then sign you up to have chemotherapy and radiation or one or the other or both depending on the institution. And then, then that'll take about four to six months, and then you'll come to surgery. But some patients, very lucky few, can go straight to surgery. Um, and the most important thing to know is that if you don't get it out, you're not going to have a chance at cure. Wow, what a great explanation that was. And in just the last few minutes, Dr. Warner, kind of cover for us what happens post-surgery. Is, sure. is this person now at risk for diabetes because the pancreas controls your insulin levels? And so speak about post-surgery and give your best advice for people sure. listening. That is a really great thing to bring up. So first and foremost, we want to talk about there's a few different techniques out there. Um, when you talk about Whipple's, uh, you know, everybody hears about the robot and the minimally invasive surgical options. There are definitely minimally invasive options for the Whipple. There are just a few centers in the United States that are doing this right now. City of Hope is talking about moving towards doing robotic Whipple's, uh, but what it really requires is a dedication from the institution and two uh, attending surgeons who want to move that, that way. And we're working towards that as a group as we get more robotic experience, but we're not going to go there until we know it's safest for our patients. 
uh, the, for distal pancreatectomies, meaning taking out that tail and the spleen like we talked about before, laparoscopic or robotic surgery is essentially the standard of care at this juncture, except for big, huge tumors that might be doing something uh, in, 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 inventive. Um, uh, but for the most part, uh, you should be offered a minimally invasive resection for those. And if you're not, then you should ask about why. And if you're not at a specialty center, you should get yourself there. So what happens after surgery, uh, really um, the, the amount of complications and the likelihood of you dying from the operation has actually been directly correlated with hospital volume, and, well, sorry, with surgeon volume, that is, of pancreatic resection. So again, it's so important to get yourself to a center that has a lot of experience with this. I know everybody wants to stay close to home because your communities are there, but it's so important to have surgery at a major center. Some of the more common complications after a Whipple procedure uh, specifically include uh, something called delayed gastric emptying, which just means that the stomach sort of forgets for a little while how it's supposed to work. The stomach is kind of a dumb organ. You know, a lot of the other intestines, they like they know that they need to move things forward and they do it in a concerted manner. The stomach is a churner. So the stomach just sort of uh, has this um, dopey uh, march along attitude. And so sometimes when you when you cut nerves and arteries that go to the stomach, which you have to do for the Whipple, uh, it kind of forgets its job for a little bit. So that happens in about 25% of patients, and that can be tough because eating um, is no longer what you thought. You'll have a new normal the same way gastric bypass patients have a new normal for uh, exactly how you're going to eat in the future. Uh, as far as the diabetes risk that you ask about, which is a great question, uh, if you already are diabetic and you're not needing insulin, um, there is a, it depends on, on how much medicine you're using, but there's about a 25 to 50% risk that you're going to need insulin once we're done with the Whipple. If you are not diabetic, um, uh, you're going to have about a 10% risk of, of needing of being diabetic or needing insulin after the surgery. And some people need insulin in the hospital that don't wind up needing it long term. Uh, so on the whole, taking all comers, there's about a uh, 15 to 20% risk of diabetes after, the, after a Whipple procedure. Distal pancreatectomy varies based on how much pancreas you wind up having to take. Another big risk that we talk to everybody about is when we take everything apart and put it back together, anytime you have a cut edge of the pancreas, that pancreas is designed to help you digest things. And the body does a very good job of keeping pancreas juices inside the intestinal tract. Of course, when we go and cut it open in surgery, those juices can get out. And because they're really good at digesting things, they can actually hinder the healing process after surgery. And you can have leaks from the pancreas edge. That can happen in Whipples and in distal pancreatectomies. So after the Whipple, it depends on the data that you read and also depends on the texture of the pancreas, but the risk of leak can be somewhere between 10 and 20 to 25 percent. After a distal pancreatectomy, same thing, the risk of leak uh, is a little higher, actually around 20 to 30 percent. Those leaks can keep people in the hospital, can make things like delayed gastric emptying happen more frequently, and can also cause some more catastrophic consequences in terms of eating away at blood vessels. But those are more, much more rare, but things that the clinicians need to be thinking about. Most of the time, those leaks can be managed with drains, but people um, should not expect, but be prepared for the possibility of having kind of this, a drain live with them for a little while after the resection. But in general, to answer um, 
what to expect postoperatively. You got to train for the surgery in advance like you're going to run a marathon because your body is going to be on overdrive for a while and there's just going to be a new normal. Most people tell us that it takes about 12 weeks to sort of wake up one morning and forget that you had surgery when you've had a big whipple like this. Um, and after that, you know, unfortunately, many times we then, once you feel better, have to hit you with chemo. So what people should prepare for is a long road, uh, but if you've got the right surgeon and the right medical team, they can get you through it. Uh, and it's just some, a very intense experience that we go through together and, and uh, get people on the other side uh, with a chance at cure. Wonderful information. Thank you so much, Dr. Warner, for being with us today. You're listening to City of Hope Radio. And for more information, you can go to cityofhope.org. That's cityofhope.org. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.